0: What is the thing that we can all do to really support the growth and development of this child and raise their own belief in what's possible?
1: The educational landscape has shifted. The social mobility is very segregated. Therefore, politically, the same thing is happening.
0: The decisions you make around that child's education
1: are of paramount importance. What can we do that would make educators' lives better? How do we make change that you can see in the classroom?
0: They don't have summers off. They're not on a break. Most of the time that kids are not in school, teachers are still working. To impact our urban public schools, to impact the life of a child, we really wanted to elevate the profile of our city as well as elevate the opportunities that exist in education here. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education. Well, hey, guys, I'm sitting here with Mr. Pedro Martinez from SAISD. Thanks for being here, sir. Thank
1: you for having me, Jennifer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually really excited about this conversation. I was um, kind of, we, Pedro and I met on Friday just to kind of plan out what we were going to say and talk about today. And I was telling Carlos, my husband, about it over the weekend. And I was like, it was actually really like a full circle moment for me because And I told you this on our call Friday SAIC raised me uh, professionally right like I have a true and sincere love for the school district it's where I send my children it's where I spent 17 years of my professional life, and I still help with several of the SAISD schools through the cast network. Um, I also have have had many moments in my professional career where I was like pulling my hair out. Like I don't understand what's happening. I'm so frustrated or I am feeling facing burnout. And so sitting and talking to you today is like a moment for me personally. And I just wanted to say again, thanks for being here., no, thank you. So let's kick it off with just like a get to know you, right? I mean, I think the people who listen to my podcast, by now, they really know who I am and what I'm about. But I'll say again, that my why to education is that I truly believe it can be, it can act as an equalizer. Um, It doesn't, you know, I think there are some big systems in place that are oppressive and that are racist that we are always countering. But if there's any hope, it is going to be through education. Um, and, and so I, I can't ever get very far away from it. Even when I left SAISD, I still stayed super connected. Um, so for you, why don't we start with like getting to know you? What is your why? Why, why education? Why SAISD? And maybe most importantly, like why right now?
1: <clears throat> yeah, so for me, uh, Jennifer, some, you, know, for, you know my background really has shaped the way I view education. So I I born in Mexico. Grew up in Chicago. Uh, came to this country when I was turning six, and my father knew that we weren't going to have a successful life in, in in Mexico. I had a sibling that died uh, at about two at, at two years of age, and I still I still could see. I must have been turning four, and I could still see you know sort of like the small wooden coffin that that, that they you know they brought her out in, and and my father knew that it was it was a matter of life and death. It wasn't even you know about education or. Or success, it was truly about life and that. So we came to this country, and I was—we uh, landed in Chicago. My father had some—some uh, some, uh, had a brother who had come here and had, you know, sort of secured a job. So helped my father get a job. And my father had these dreams. He was a musician. He could hear a song and play it on three different. He taught himself three different instruments, and wow. he could hear a song once and play it on all three instruments. So he had this dream to be an artist. Mm-hmm. I never worked out that way for him. I mean, he. Worked in the factory all of his life, worked two jobs, never made more than, uh, than you know, $5 an hour. And, and for me, um, I remember I used to do this in Texas when I was a teenager. And I, you know, eventually I was the oldest of 12, 10 of us still alive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I realized very quickly that in this country, there's opportunity, but the, really only, the only opportunity you really have is through education, and it was teachers who really showed me, um, starting in you know really in fifth and sixth grade, with Miss Tapia and Miss Mr. Asher, and at that time uh, teachers could just you know could really practice tough love, and I'll leave it at that. I mean they just <laughs> things that, that we that our teachers can not do today. Uh, but because of, of those two teachers, um, I was able to go to junior high and be in a in an honors program, and and also I continued to be in honors programs in high school, and it was it was literally a group of teachers. Uh, From Ms. Tapia, Mr. Asher, Mr. Tibbet, Ms. McGovern, my math teacher in eighth grade, all the way to ninth grade, Ms. Trent, who was my senior year writing teacher. She's the she's the only reason I survived writing, and I could even write anything in college. And so, you know, you know, because of those decisions I made, Jennifer, all of my siblings have either finished or finishing their post secondary education. Half of us have graduate degrees. Uh, You know, half of us are in education. I have a sister who's a nurse, uh, an oncology nurse, working with uh, patients who have cancer. Um, I have a brother who joined the Marines and did two tours in Iraq and then came back and got his degree and working on a nonprofit. So what I have seen firsthand, <clears throat> when you live in poverty, education has been truly our equalizer. The, what's interesting for me, though, now that I'm in part of the system is I also see all the challenges and obstacles that exist that affect our children of poverty and our children that are our children of color, whether it's our Latinx children or African-American children, and there are systemic issues. And so for me, what what's interesting is, you know, I, I started in this work wanting to make a difference for our children and, and helping them get the same kind of, you know, access that I had, but it's also now, it's that plus now also removing the obstacles that I continue to see, and especially here in San Antonio, because- San Antonio has really reshaped the way I look at education, especially when it comes to serving children in poverty.
0: Mm-hmm. So much of what you said is wrapped up in a lot of people's stories, right? Like it's a lot of it's a lot of our stories, particularly here in San Antonio, to be from um, families who have immigrated to the United States and to have come through a system of poverty and gotten to another to a different side of it, right? And to want for each generation to be a little bit better than the generation that's being left behind. I think that's a really, it's like an integral part of so many people's stories, especially here in San Antonio. I also think like I, if I had to poll teachers on why they came to the teaching profession, it would be really similar to what you just said to make a difference in the lives of our students. And if I to ask the same teachers, like what's the grittiest part of teaching it's, to make a difference in the lives of our students right like that's it's that's the hardest part of the job it's why the job but it's the hardest thing in the job and it's some of it is because of systems and when you have you know i would like to hear from your perspective like what are those systems what's been the most challenging thing about the work that you do um, and then i can i can try to guess what i think teachers would say if i if if i asked them the same thing like what's the most challenging thing um, I think there might be some similarities, but I, I want to hear what you what you think has been most challenging.
1: So when I started here, Jennifer, and this was now you know almost six years ago, I started in June of 2015, and what I what I could tell was uh, first of all, you know, I knew our performance was low. Um, I, I could see that just by the number of schools that you know this is when the state was starting to rate schools, starting to give grades eventually to districts. And I could see that a large percentage of our schools were struggling. They were struggling academically. You know, when I dug a little deeper, what I found was uh, that really in terms of resources, this district had been starved for resources. And you could, and it couldn't be more visible than walking into buildings and classrooms that, you know, buildings that had not been renovated in decades, uh, you know.
0: Literally decades.
1: Systems like AC systems, and, and I got to tell you, I, I love the community of San Antonio. I cannot stand the weather here. Uh, you know, having a hundred degree weather through Thanksgiving with humidity. I'm sorry, that nobody told me about that. Uh, in South Texas, and so just to even just to even imagine Jennifer, our kids in hot classrooms with teachers just angers me because because I you know it just bothers me so much how you know how difficult the weather can be here. And then to have our schools be like that and, and, and to have, it had been accepted, it had been accepted for decades. And then I went a little deeper, right? And why is that? It was because our tax base was at a fraction of what it was of our suburban peers. Well, why was that? Well, because, you know, uh, nobody invested in our community. Nobody, everybody was investing up North. Nobody, there was no strategy. There was no vision to create some sense of equity Um, And so, of course, and you do it, and you're doing it to a district that's 97% of children of color, over 90% of poverty. Like, like for me, the blamism of it really is what, you know, really, you know, shocked me, uh, that it was that clear. And then I realized, you know, this is my first time being in the southern part of the country. And I heard stories, you know, about how, because in the Midwest, in Chicago, it wasn't that things were figured out over there, not at all. In fact, I was one of these activists, Uh, you know, both my wife and I were, uh, we actually did a lot of organizing, social organizing, uh, you know, in our younger years. And I was an activist in college. I I did hunger strikes because there wasn't uh, an appropriate representation of Latinos at U of I. Uh, My wife started her job as an organizer, literally organizing families around safety, around making sure the police were being responsive to the neighborhoods, around housing practices. So this is our background, Jennifer. And so basically coming here, what i saw was well here we have representation i saw you know rep, you know you know leaders of color you know at the city level at the at the county level even starting at the state level and yet i saw this blatant blatant uh, yeah. sense of inequity and i could see how it directly impacted our schools and so for me those are the systems that i have you know for you know since i began here and t- i'll tell you jennifer it's become for me even more more than a job it's like almost become now an obsession to mm. try- Dismantle these systems. And then what, what's complex about it is the individuals within the systems, they got used to them.
0: Yeah. And so,
1: because of that, then, then it became, you know, it's this terrible, terrible cycle of, well, you know, you don't have good learning conditions. And so, what happens? You, you don't have good results. Who do you blame? Well, you blame the kids, you blame the parents, right? So, instead of, so all of us get, get into this trap of instead of attacking the bigger issue, which is the systemic issues of inequity. I'll call it systemic issues of racism. Instead, we wind up attacking each other. And that's what I was seeing, Jennifer, coming in here is this finger pointing of, well, this is why these schools are failing. This is why, you know, and, and, and even within our board. And, and so, you know, one of the things that I really love is, that, you know, our board and I, we really had these tough talks in the very beginning. And we said, okay, are we going to be a district that's going to start dismantling these issues, um, and we have, we have to make some really tough decisions and we got to call things for what they are. We cannot sugarcoat. Because, by the way, the other thing I, I saw here, Jennifer, it was this feeling of you got to be nice and get along.
0: Welcome to the South. Along. So let's not
1: talk about these issues, right? Like, let's be nice and get along. Well, guess what? When you're nice and you get along, it doesn't mean that everybody comes along. And so I saw so many of our children falling behind. I saw so many of our teachers just being frustrated because again, they weren't seeing the results because teachers don't come weren't coming to our district to fail kids, no, to make a difference in the, in the, in the, you know, in the lives of our children. But yet they couldn't because of all these systems that were in their way. And so I'm not saying we're there yet, Jennifer, but if anything, that has been my, my goal is to dismantle these things. And by the way, it doesn't mean we get it all right. It doesn't mean, and sometimes because I'm in Texas, I'm forced to do things that that I probably wouldn't do. But frankly, if it gets my students more resources, if it helps my teachers, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it because that's part of the process of dismantling these systems.
0: It's really interesting to hear you talk about your background in organizing and in advocacy for both you and your wife. Because I feel like personally and professionally, those are new words to my vocabulary, right? Like I, I don't know that I ever grew up thinking about how to organize or what I should be advocating for, or who I should be advocating for. I I think that those are revelations that have happened really late in my life. And I don't know if that is a product of having only lived in San Antonio. I was born and raised in San Antonio. I think I briefly lived in Lubbock when I was an infant. So I don't remember that. Um, And it's just not, it hasn't been part of my personal culture. I think that it's subtle. Like, my grandparents and my parents broke stereotypes and they were adamant about it and they talked to us about it but it wasn't public it was like in our family these are the things that I we have overcome as a family and this is why you're going to do better than what we did right like this is why you're never going to pick cotton this is why you're going to get a college education these were first steps in our family but they weren't like centered around our community or centered around um even our our heritage or our ethnicity it was it was it to me felt very much like this is what is true and right for the people living in this house right to no fault of my parents i i I admire my my uh, my grandparents and my parents immensely i just advocacy advocacy and organizing aren't something that i grew up thinking about or operating in Um, and so to hear you think to hear your background in organizing and think about how that ties you to the work as superintendent in in SAISD I think is it's new right like I I'm not sure that I've ever heard you talk about organizing and advocacy um, in in the context of like why you're the superintendent right or why you stay Um, I never had a professional ambition to be a superintendent Um, because it's a lot of pressure and it's a lot of politicking. And, you know, I, in my top five strengths, my number one strength is harmony. And no matter how many times I take that test, my number one strength is harmony. And so for me, it's really hard to, to pick um, one right way or the right way. It's, it's, I really am interested in figuring out how, I don't know, like it's, to, it, the role of superintendent seems like there's just so much pressure. Um, and I, I will name that I feel like you have a devout group of opposition in your school district that is ever present and really loud in the teacher union. And so how do you how do you like handle or balance the 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 loud opposition with like your, your desire to advocate for a community that's been historically underserved
1: no and, and, what, and this is what makes the work so difficult Jennifer so one of the things that you know I always tell my colleagues especially brand new superintendents you know um, I never consider myself sort of one of the senior experienced superintendents but more and more of my uh, more and more of my colleagues are seeing me that way which is a little strange for me uh, so they ask for my advice and the one thing that I tell them is you have to decide early on in this job, are you going to do this job to keep it? Or are you going to do this job to, to use your voice to, to really fight for, again, dismantling these systems of inequity? And if you can't see the systems of inequity, um, then, you know, then I feel, you know, then, then you're not going to be effective, at least not working in an urban district. Right. Um, you can work in a small suburban district. And by the way, there's plenty of those jobs. And, and you know, and that's, that's fine. But... But if you're going to work in an urban district, you have to make the decision right from the very beginning, because these children, these families, many of them, they won't say anything to you, but they're counting on you, right? Mm-hmm. And you're their voice. They're too busy trying to figure out how to pay their bills. They're trying to figure out how to survive. And, you know, uh, Jen, one of the things that I do is a lot, I do a lot of research around scarcity, mm-hmm. and it's when you look at some, you know, there's, a, there's some amazing podcasts that I would recommend any of our teachers to listen to. You can just Google. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's amazing when, when you, how your brain works. When you, when your brain, and you know, and the reason I started doing this research is because I wanted to understand my parents. I want because because for me, it's always been this feeling of, it wasn't that my parents were bad parents, but they just, you know, they, they struggled their whole lives, right? And they struggled. And and I always, um, you know, I, I was not a reader when I was small, right? My, I don't remember my mom ever picking up a book in front of me, right? Um, my my dad loved math, so he did math problems with us. And guess what? My strongest subject is math. I was a math, uh, uh, I was a double major in college, and math was one of those. And, you know, for me, uh, but that was because my dad instilled it when he was small. But I don't remember very much else in terms of academics in our house. And when I started doing this research on scarcity, I realized that your brain cannot even plan or function of thinking ahead of the future because you're so busy on how to get through the day. You're so busy on getting, getting through the hour. And so many of our families live like that, Jennifer. And so for me, going back to your point, um, you know, when I decided to take this job and I really, and, I, and this was a, a conversation I had with each board, each board member and said, okay, who are we gonna be? Because right now we're failing as a district. We're failing our children. I see this infighting. And by the way, you know, it's be really easy to just kind of blame one person, right? Or one group, right? It's the state. It's the state. Let's just go after the state. Or let's go after the city. Or let's go after the county. Or let's go after charter schools. Or let's go after, you know, uh, whoever, right? Who, pick your, and what I realize here, Jennifer, is that we had to dismantle everything. So, for example, low expectations. Um, so many of our staff were coming in here and we already were expecting less of our children. How do I know that? we had some of the highest failure rates that I had ever seen in my career. How do you even explain going to Canal Middle School, where more than a third of my seventh and eighth graders were, were, were at high school age, more than a third? These children had been failed two or three times over. I mean, just, it was almost cruel. When we looked at kindergarten and first grade, the amount of retention, I have never seen that before. And so for me, it it was, it was almost, it was designed. The system was almost being built because they didn't have resources, right? So people were frustrated. So what did they do? They were taking it out on the children. And because the parents didn't complain, because why? Because they're just trying to survive, right? Back to the scarcity argument. And so we had this- It's hard.
0: I mean, I remember those days clearly because I was already a principal. And I remember the tough conversations in principal meetings, And it being like, it hurt. It hurt to hear. And it made me angry and defensive because I thought, well, shit, I've been working my butt off. Like I have, there's not a day that I have come to work and thought like, well, whatever, whatever happens today happens today, you know, like, and, and so I, I, uh, I remember being in the seat, uh, and feeling like, man, this person just got here. And he's naming all of these things that are failing. And I've maybe been part of it by extension, but I know me and mine and we're doing okay. And I had no idea that all of the other things that you were talking about were happening or true. Um, and I had full faith in my, in my colleagues, right? Like you you sort of don't know what you don't know. And you, when you are so attached to your work and you're giving it everything you've got, you're at a loss for why it isn't working. I'll just, I, I, it, you're, you're truly at a loss for like, how can this be true? When I know how much I care and I feel like I got a good education in college and I'm prepared to do the work that I am doing. And I came from here and I am successful. And I, you know, I went through SAISD schools in elementary and middle school. I left for a charter, an in-district choice school um, that Northside was offering, but I felt, I felt competent until those conversations. And then I was like, what have we been doing? Like I, this is a really hard conversation, um, but it wasn't not It wasn't not true, like those schools were failing and we did have overage children at every grade level, including first grade. And we did have systems that were failing, not just pockets, not like one offs where someone let the ball slip, you know, and and that that school was failing. It was big failures across the districts.
1: And I would say, Jennifer, you know, the one thing that um, and this has probably been what's been difficult for me is that. You know, we called out everything, right? So so we called out the community for not investing in our district. We called out uh, philanthropy for funding charters that, frankly, you know, we're, all they were doing is just, you know, screening the children, right, and trying to get our higher performing children instead of trying to serve all of our children. We called everybody out, but because we were a failing district, if we didn't call ourselves out, I didn't feel that we could we would have the credibility to get the investment, yeah. to Forced the change that needed to occur both within the district and outside of the district and and unfortunately that puts you in a position as a superintendent where you know you're going to anger a lot of people and what's interesting you know Jennifer you know the number of people that tell me now right now that I'm in my sixth year they said Pedro nobody ever talked to us that way Mm -hmm. nobody ever said those things so Mario Barrera who's the head of my blue ribbon task force he said you know you called it out about how this district was doing but you also called out the community and how they the community allowed it to happen. Yeah. And you use those words, right? Like you literally called that out that that don't blame the schools, don't blame the teachers. It's you look at that. That's right.
0: It's everybody around it us. Was a community. Yes, it was a community
1: that? And and so because of that, Jennifer, you know, now, now let's look where we're at today, right? Because that was that was a dark time. And and definitely there's still people that are still upset. Look. I love this country, Jennifer. I appreciate when people speak out. You know, for me, I will never claim that I have all the answers. And I will always tell you, I am still learning here. Yeah. I'm not San Antonio, but I cannot step back, be in my position and not call things out. Yeah. And the only thing I would tell people is I will call th- call things out across the board. So in other words, I'm not going to pick and choose. Sure. Because at the end of the day, uh, the only way we're going to improve is, is if we look at ourselves in the mirror, as well as we call out others. Yeah, What's happened since then? You've seen, for example, in our teacher surveys, our teachers have never felt better about being in our district. Now, let's put aside COVID, and I will talk about that in a second. But they've never, our survey data has been really clear. We've had surveys now for the last four years. Results have been going up every single year. They feel good about the professional development that we're providing, the advancement opportunities, We're getting our systems about recognizing them to be better. Um, And so we've seen that. And then when you ask them, what's the number one reason why you're here? It is because of our children. Yeah. It is because of it. But now, Jennifer, it's consistent. I have no doubt, yourself, other leaders like you, teachers like you, you were always here for the children, but that wasn't always the case across the district.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So now we see that, you know, when we have over 85, 90% of our teachers who are doing these surveys and they're saying their number one reason to be here. Is because of our children. Their number one reason why they feel good about their work is because they're seeing their children growing academically. What is their number one struggle? Seeing their you know, how to how to accelerate that, how to make that faster. That is literally their number one struggle. And I love that because I say, "Yep, yeah, you're being real because that is the that is the work, right?" I mean, what like you said, Jennifer, what drives you is also your biggest challenge. But that's a but that's a good place to be at. It
0: is. That, I. I wish that we could hear that louder because I feel like it's not they're not shouting it from the rooftops how happy they I don't hear that narrative as loud as other narratives so I just want to take a moment to say like if you're listening and you are a person who is happy to be working for SAISD and who is happy to be it you know COVID aside with the progress that the district has made i I feel like we all need to tell that story a little bit louder because I am proud of our school district, and I'm proud of the work and i and i am I will tell you like there were many days that I sat in that seat, and I'm sorry for being so frank, Mr. Martinez. This is just the way I talk when i'm <laughs> but I lots of times thought like, You want me to make chicken salad out of chicken shit, and I don't know how to do that, sir. you know like this is it's a community thing it's not just the schools, it's that we don't have access to food. Our families don't have reliable electricity. Our families don't have uh, access to reliable healthcare um, or child care before and after school. Um, we're not. We don't have the same resources in seven eight two zero seven that someone in seven eight two five four is. We're not. We don't have a bookstore. We don't have coffee shops. We don't have. We didn't have um, six years ago places that had free Wi-Fi in in our school district where you could just go prop up and get some work done you know those things did not exist we don't even have atm machines like being at school and wanting to like go run and get cash does not exist um we don't even have banks because it's a it's like it's almost a cash-based society which i don't think everybody in the city realizes what living in the urban core of the city looks like for many people who live there it's cash-based It's it's based on convenience. Um, It's a working class, you know, you're getting paid in cash. It's just, it's a different, it's a different thing. So I think what I I see
1: Jennifer is that, you know, so, so if you, if you look at the context of the work we've done in 2019, which is the last year we got tested, we had the highest achievement gains of any district in Texas. The commissioner literally said this district is going to show the state that poverty will not determine the destiny. In the meantime, we're three weeks away from a bond election. Right. I don't want to jinx it, but, um, you know, right now we're feeling, you know, cautiously optimistic. If that bond passes, Jennifer, that is $1.3 billion, the largest bond ever of any district, any, the city, the county, you name any structure in Bear County in this area. Nobody has ever gotten anything bigger. By the way, Dallas is right now, you know, doing a bigger bond, but their tax base is more than six times our size yeah their bond is not six times uh, you know what we're asking for so in other words they've always had an amazing tax base it's only now that they're actually using it we had to build ours up we literally had to build ours up so so I, i get and i know this is a lot for our staff to understand in our community but you know all these things we've done and and again we've made our mistakes so trust me i'm i am not asking at all for for you to think or you know for you to think that we didn't make mistakes we've made our mistakes but if you look at what has happened since then our results are stronger we're getting more investment in our community than ever before we're about to take a, to leverage that investment potentially with these new bonds that will and with a master plan that by 2030 every facility will be done every classroom we now have devices for every child we now have, are getting more internet access to our families. We're still not 100%, but we are so close, Jennifer. Yeah. And now we have a mechanism to sustain it. And so when you look at all these things together, has it been messy? Absolutely. Has it been difficult for our teachers and principals? God bless our principals and teachers. It has been a lot on them. But I'll tell you, Jennifer, children now are having pride about their identity. They're talking about their culture. They're talking about their language. Go back five years ago. That was not happening the fact that we're giving access to our children to dual credit classes, to uh, college, you know, classes that are gonna prepare them for college. The fact that we talk about college all the time, whether it's the community colleges or universities, our top tier uh, uh, colleges here in Texas and also around the country, and we're getting children in those opportunities. We've more than doubled our scholarships that our children are generating now. And so for me, Jennifer, when I look at all these things, yes, you know, again, Throughout the process, could have we have done things a little bit better? Absolutely. There's always room for improvement. But for me, we, had a, we, need to, we needed to make sure that we were looking at ourselves in the mirror. We needed to call out the community. And there's going to be individuals that, that will disagree with me. And then, like you said, they're going to be stout disagreeers. But for me, at the end of the day, what I look at is, okay, if you want equity, you want social justice, where have you been? Because that has been the work here for the last five and a half years. Now, you may not like the tactics, but I'll tell you, I can give you a rationale for every tactic. So, for example, you know, we get criticized because, you know, we got a law called 1882 passed to be able to fund partnerships. Well, what is that for? That is because charter schools have always received a higher per pupil amount than any of our traditional schools. They've also received a lot of philanthropic funding. And so we leverage the fact that we could do in-district charters where we control the enrollment, we control access, we, by partnering with a nonprofit or a university or a college, or even a charter operator, we get the, ex- the equivalent amount of funds that they get. In other words, we get the additional money. And guess what? We're able to get grants like for Gates for a million dollars. Gates has been a B school uh, almost the whole time I've been here. You know, Sonia Mores turned around that school on the east side, one of the most highest poverty areas. But she was getting no additional resources. We yeah. she now gets additional money similar to her charter school, and she got a $1 million grant. So now she can compete with IDEA in that area. And by the way, academically, she was already outperforming her competition. Mm-hmm. But the resources were never there. And so, Jennifer, so much of the work we've done, and that I just want to make sure people understand, is that it has always been to level the playing field when it comes to resources. And this was a, a district and a community. They never, I mean, this district was never, there was never any investments in this district and people accepted it. And guess what, because of that, it created the dysfunctionality that we had five and a half years ago.
0: I think we, you know, just in my, own, in my own experience, I feel like we've lived a long life in a binary system where it's either you are ISD or you are charter or parochial, right? And those are the two choices parents really had what I think I appreciate now is the actual, we're not binary. It's, there's a blend. There are lots of different ways that, that people are partnering to help schools improve. And it's interesting to watch. And I don't think, I think you're right. Nobody's got it all figured out. I don't think that charter systems all on their own are the end all solution. I don't think ISDs have it figured out clearly, right? Like there's lots of things that are problematic, even in the ISD system. Um, I don't think I don't think that private schools are the solution, but I do think that when you, the more minds on a problem, the better the solution becomes. And so I appreciate that you are at least open to figuring out like, how can we solve for this? How can we level the playing field when it comes to resources, when it comes to building updates? Because that is the competition. You Something shiny is always gonna be more attractive. And I will tell you that having been a school principal in the urban core and seeing a brand new charter building erect it is hard pill to I had major building envy for a long time because you you, the school that I was working in was literally the last time it was renovated was in the 80s and it was built way before then and the 80s renovation wasn't a complete renovation so I used to say it was like um, the cruise ship, you know, you had classrooms that were on the inner cruise and the outer ones had the windows. But if you were in the intersection, it was a dark dungeon and God forbid electricity go out because you were, you were literally in the dark. Um, so it, all of those things, I think, are really important when we consider the changes that have happened in in the school district, and as we mitigate our feelings around those changes. I think change is always hard. I always laugh at San Antonio in general because I think we want to be really innovative and we want to be cutting edge until it attacks us, until it like touches us personally, and then you're like, well, not that innovative. Not <laughs> we don't want to be that cool, right? Like we want to um, have our our tradition and our way of being. Like the San Antonio way, and then as and then as things start shifting, people start coming. It's like a slow. Um, my mom will kill me for telling this, but I, I think this is true. Like if I ask my mom something once, her first response is usually no. Like that can't happen. I'm doing XYZ, but. But if if I persist in the conversation, I don't even have to ask another time. She'll work herself into it, yes. She'll go through, like, it starts with, no, 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 I'm busy, I'm doing this, this, this. And by the, she'll just keep talking. And as she talks, it's like, well, but if I move this around, and if I do that, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, I'll do it, you know? And, and we, are my siblings and I, we laugh about it. But like, that's so San Antonio. The initial reaction is like, absolutely not. Can that ever happen? And then as you keep going, it's like, well, actually, if we do this, and do that and suddenly we're all on 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 board with whatever that changes I also think like it is really hard on people it's hard it's hard on people it's hard on teachers it's hard on principals um, and they they are the ones that are actually doing the work it's easy grass tops but the grassroots there's a little bit of a breakdown between, in between. Um, and it does get, it does get exhausting. Like you can experience true burnout. And I, I know I've expressed this to you before, but that is where I was. I was sitting in the last principals meeting, the very last one at Highland sitting, talking to ASCD and feel, and they were asking, you know, what do you want to continue to do next year? What can you let go of what worked well for you and your school? What maybe are you going to rethink? Because that didn't go. And I just remember sitting there thinking like, I cannot do this again. Like I can't at the end of this year be thinking about how I'm going to do this next year. I might lose my actual mind. (laughs) Um, And so for me, it was like, recognizing in myself that in order to stay salty, I needed to step away and take like a professional sabbatical from the work that I was doing to figure out how I could lean into what my passions are. And it was, I don't think I knew, I felt like it was resignation at the time. And now I, I have relabeled that as like me being able to say, I have to take care of me. If I'm not good for me, I'm not good for anything. Right. How do you? So October is a hard month. October and February in the school year; those are hard months for teachers. So we're really working hard at encouraging teachers to practice good self care and to and and not in a in a surfacey way, like just you know simple things, but actually thinking through what do you need to stay close to the work that you're doing. Um, so what would you say to teachers and leaders? Maybe you have advice. Like, what do you do for self care? How would you encourage them to stay connected to their why and their passion so that they don't face burnout?
1: So I think number one, Jennifer, you know, my advice to always to our principals, but I would say this to our teachers as well is first of all, um, you know, you got to play the long game. Uh, it, It does not help you, yourself, your family, your loved ones around you if you're running this sprint and you are trying to run the sprint in spite of everything, right? Uh, because so many times, you know, we can allow our passion and we say, well, you know what? Yeah, you know, this isn't happening, but I'm still going to do it. Yeah, these, these, I have these obstacles, but I'm still going to do it, right? And trust me, all of us have been there. All of us have been there, especially in our youth. I mean, my goodness, in my 20s and 30s, that's all I was, right? I mean, it just didn't matter. And I just felt that was invincible. And you learn later that first of all, you need to bring a group, you have to have a group around you. So my first advice is surround yourself with people, whether it's your loved ones, your family, people that know you, that are going to help you to to be that calming force, right? That when you're having that real stressful, that you can just kind of be cool, it can calm you down, help you breathe a bit. What I also do is uh, I I go walking a lot. Uh, I, I do, I try to, I have two children, so I know that as soon as they get up, they're going to demand 100% of my time. They're nine and six. Um, but what I do is before they get up, I, you know, I get up early in the morning. It's almost every day of the week, unless I have a really early meeting where I just do a walk. Mm-hmm. I do a walk for at least 20 minutes a day. I do a little bit of light exercise just to get my head just clear. And, and, and as I walk, I really, I mean, I, I, I try to put myself in a position where I can reflect, where I can really think about things that are happening. So for example, our approach around reopening schools for COVID, how we're struggling with how to reduce anxiety for our teachers. But, but just being able to just think. Uh, so many times, you know, I think our leaders and our teachers don't give themselves the time just to think, right? You're so busy working all the time. So make that time for yourself and be religious about it. Do not, uh, do not you know, compromise on that. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, as human beings, there are, there are little things that make us happy. <laughs> little things that make us happy And you should never feel selfish from, you know, just letting yourself be happy in those little moments, whatever they are. Like, you know, like one of the things like I love, my my six-year-old, she's one of the most, uh, you know, she just learned, she learned how to read. And I just love uh, reading with her because she has the greatest sense of humor. And so we read these dogman books that have, you know, they're just some awesome, you know, you know, the the author's an amazing author. And it just, you know, they have some, just all these jokes within, within the stories. And my little girl just cracks up. We both cracked up together. And I realized like those moments, they're just precious. Right. And, and, and it isn't a lot of time, but I, you know, every night we try to just, so I just say, find those moments that make you happy, whatever those are uh, that are personal to you. Don't, you know, and don't feel selfish for taking them. So many times what I've seen, Jennifer, is people burn themselves out because they're working 12 hours a day. They're working 16 hours a day, and it's nonstop. And I get it. Sometimes you feel like that's that's the urgency you have to have. Um, but when you do that and you do that alone, um, that isn't good for you. And so that's the number one thing that I would say is find, find your cohort, not your cohort, your little group that, that that's your support group. I call it your support group around you, and give yourself the time to both breathe, to reflect. And give yourself the pleasure of those happy moments, whatever they are, and try to, you know, have you know, just have them in front of you as much as you can throughout, you know, throughout the day. Because I'll tell you, Jennifer, that's what helps you get through these very tough times.
0: And they are really tough times. I think people are really worried about their own health and well-being and the well-being of the people that they live with. And I also think the workload is just immense in this moment where people are trying to figure out like how do i plan for the kids that are face-to-face and simultaneously plan for the kids that are learning virtually um and learn myself because these are not all of the systems we're using are systems that we've used in the past so you know google classroom's always been around um canvas has been around in higher education but they're not things that every teacher has been using to proficiency right they were like the add-on the extra the extension the gold star um and now everybody is relying on them to reach every student and so i do think like it is i think we ha- probably have a huge cohort of people who are pulling 12 to 14 hour days right now at least yeah. at least monday through friday um and i think like kind of circling back on on your ideas around organizing and on being voice or or being a voice in in the larger community, I feel like teachers are longing to have their, maybe, and maybe that's why some organizations like the Alliance have such a loud platform is because teachers are eager to have their voice represented in some way. So if people wanted to let you know or wanted to to weigh in on what's happening at schools or what what the right protocols might be or what the workload really is, and they just want... you or the school board to feel to create a space and just let them let them get it off their chest like how would they do that how because I think that too is part of self-care is like recognizing this is what's this is what's keeping me up at night and I need to yeah. put it somewhere other than in my head it needs to be like with my support group of family or coworkers. or but sometimes like that's just venting right Like my husband was never going to solve my principal problems. God bless him. (laughs) I love Carlos to death. He just held me, right? Uh, He was along for the ride, but he didn't have any social or political capital that would change my work life. You know what I mean? So like, how do they change their work life in in service of self-preservation and in like staying with a job? Because I think teachers are at a point where some teachers are at a breaking point where it's like, do I even want to be doing this right now with my life?
1: So Jennifer, here's what I would say. Um, So first of all, you know, and my wife always says this about me, I tend to always look ahead. You know, I I tend to be a planner. Um, And I think where it comes from is when I was growing up, my my present was, I was miserable.
0: Mm -hmm. I was
1: angry. You know, when I was thinking of the real, what I was going through in real time uh, because my family was poor you know, I would watch TV and I'd see the Brady Bunch and I'd say, well, why couldn't my family be like that? They have a lot of kids and look at them. They have a nice house, right? And they have, I mean, I mean, why can't my family be like that? And so it was always, I grew up like that. And so for me, the, my best way to survive that is I just thought ahead. I just thought ahead, right? I, I just planned ahead. And so here's what I would you know, tell our staff is here, here's my best, you know, intuitive guesses on what's happening with this, with this pandemic, Number one, um, we're going to probably have a vaccine. They'll probably be approved. It could be by the end of this calendar year. The earliest I'm hearing now, could be Thanksgiving. Trust me, our nation is not going to allow another summer where, where our, you know, our citizens and our residents cannot go and travel. Just it's not going to happen. You know, Jennifer, they're going to want you and Carlos to be on a plane somewhere going to a resort. They're going <laughs> to want teachers to go on a plane or to drive somewhere and go spend money. That is just, that is, that is the way our country is set up, right? And yeah. so by next, by the end of the school year, I, I predict that we'll have a wide distribution of a vaccine. We'll still be having a lot of safety precautions. There'll be a lot of things that are going to stick, you know, just like after 9-11, there was a lot of things that stood, right? Even like security checks at the airport. Trust me, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to stay after COVID. COVID will not go away, but it'll be manageable. It'll be much more manageable than what it right. is this year. So, so I want our staff to always look back, not to make decisions that are going to affect their life, that uh, when you have a situation that's going to change and is very dynamic and it's going to change over the next six to nine months is, is my prediction. So that's number one. So, and then what, what I've been telling our staff, Jennifer, is that we as a district, our actions, we need to look back and be proud of them. I would say as an individual, you need to make sure you're proud of your own actions, your own decisions. And at the end, it's a personal thing, right? You, you'll you make the right decisions for yourself. The other thing I would, I would advise is if you feel alone, then that is the prop, that right there is where, where I need you to do something. So whether it's an email to me, whether it's an email to Ms. Patty Salzman, our chief academic officer, uh, talking to your colleagues, talking to your principal, because what I don't want, Jennifer, is I don't want any of our staff to feel like they're by themselves. We, trust me, what I cannot do is I can't eliminate your anxiety. I cannot eliminate your fear. We are all going through this together. But that's the one thing I can do is to make sure that we're all going through this together, that it is not you going through it by yourself. And if you do, please, you have to reach out. And the way I look at it, Jennifer, we are, we are seeing across the country more and more suicide of our students across the country. It is a troubling, troubling uh, trend that I'm seeing. And one of the things that I worry about is why? Because those, you know, those children are isolating themselves. They feel like that nobody can help them, right? So imagine how, you know, our children in that situation. You got to put yourself, you got to step back and say, okay, am I putting myself in that situation where I'm isolating myself and I'm not asking for help, right? So it's just, just like the way all of us, right, we would want any child who's feeling like that to reach out for help, right? Because all of us, all we want to do is just help that child, I would tell our staff, our teachers, our principals, our support staff, do not put yourself in that isolated because that is what happens. right? When you isolate yourself, everything just looks like it's not going to get better and people get desperate. And so for me, Jennifer, I don't want people making bad decisions that are going to affect the rest of their lives when I am confident. And I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I, I am a research junkie and I am researching this stuff every single day. And so, and I get access to a lot of experts, right? I mean, across the state, across the country. And, and for me, what I see is that in the next nine months, we're going to be able to manage this pandemic. What it means, I can't tell you the details, right? But for sure, a widely distributed vaccine, we will have learned a lot about how to contain spread, how to minimize, you know, who, who you know, the people are the most at risk, how do we protect them the best? We'll learn all those things we're learning now. Um, And so for our teachers, please play the long game. You enter this profession because you wanted to make a difference in our children. We are making a difference in this district. We are making a difference for our children. I am seeing students that for the first time, they're going to college. For the first time, they're setting aspirations way above what their family was setting before, right? The first in their family to go to college, the first in their family. I got Maria Garcia, who is the oldest in her family, right now is attending MIT as we speak. My first MIT student, my first one, full ride, one of ten in the in the whole country, Jennifer. Um, you know, so we have these amazing students. And right now they might be in preschool, they might be in kindergarten, they might be in twelfth grade, Jennifer. They're all all over our district. And I know that our teachers, they can see them. They can actually see them. Yeah. And so and so, you know, again, but I also know, you know, we have the holidays, and I'm gonna urge Take that time to self-care. Take that time to rest. Take that time to reflect. So whether it's that Thanksgiving break, whether it's you know the Christmas break that's coming up, Jennifer, it's just so important that our staff play the long game. Because I almost, if I had a wish, I wish we could all hold hands and we could all literally walk through this pandemic day by day together, so that when we can get through it together, and we can be stronger for it.
0: Thank you for that. And thank you for recognizing that it is a heavy lift and that it's seasonal. God willing, this is a hard season, but that there is going to be a day when the load gets a little lighter and we are smarter um, and we do things differently. And I, I think, you know, that I've been in lots of conversations that sound like there are some things that have happened because of COVID that I hope stick so, are there any things that you already know like this? These are not going back to normal. We'll always do it like this.
1: now. So, I think, first of all, Jennifer, um, you know, not that we weren't, you know, I shared with you my, my, how I, I hate seeing the inequities when it comes to our facilities. But now, COVID has made it so that it's not even safe, right? It's not safe to have these old facilities with these outdated air systems. It's not safe. Um, it's not just about our comfort anymore, it's literally about safety. So I don't see us going back on on, on our standards for what our buildings have to be, right? Whether it's, you know, hopefully passing this bond on November 3rd, uh, going for the next bond so that we finish all the facilities, making sure that we replace all the old AC systems, all those things, we're not going back. The high level of just God, and God bless our custodial staff and our food service staff and our bus drivers. Seriously, they are there in the front lines, you know, sanitizing everything, feeding our families, delivering food to our families, transporting our children, God bless them, you know, and so, you know, the, all the safety precautions, I don't see those going away. And I'll tell you, you know, Jennifer, the fact that, you know, people are wearing masks and we're so, so tight on procedures. I mean, it is amazing. I feel bad sometimes for our families, but I mean, our procedures, I mean, they are rigid. They are rigid in terms of, they, they are not compromising safety. I think a lot of that will stay. And I think it might help our families in terms of, you know, lessening the spread of the flu, lessening the spread of colds. you know, things that we see in any given normal year, I think our safety precautions are actually gonna help with that as well. So I think those are things that are gonna stay. Uh, I think leveraging our technology, going forward every year, every, every child should have a device without exception. Every, every child should have access to the internet without exception.
0: Yeah, that access to the internet is huge. I mean, I feel like we live um, in SAISD. We live just north of of downtown, and we are in the digital divide. Like we all have the we all have devices. We had devices before COVID, but the internet in our house is the worst. And there, and we have changed providers. We have called and complained, and the 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 feedback that we always get is like, well, it doesn't, the technology doesn't exist in your neighborhood yet. It hasn't made its way to the urban core, which is so frustrating. And so I think like, yeah, even if every kid has the device, we still, the ripple effect of that is now we need the internet access. And I'm glad that that's not, that is like on the horizon and things are getting better um, in terms of like long-term citywide access to the internet.
1: Yeah, Jennifer, and on that front, I mean, I'm really part of the partnership we developed with the city. We now have our dark fiber that we just that we just finished and lit up, and now with the city, we're actually uh, investing in equipment to give access to our children to our network and so into the city's network. And so it's going to take time. We're literally starting with the west side and we're moving across the district. But the prop, the collaboration that is happening now because of COVID, I'll tell you, is another good thing for us for it to stay because we're finally addressing these issues like the digital divide.
0: I think that that's helpful too, in terms of self-care is to like know the information, right? And to hear it firsthand, to hear superintendents say, here are the things that are happening that are going to stay and they're going to be good for us. And we're going to make it out of this. um, And everybody needs to rest. And I think that there's an element of grace around rest that hasn't always been present, right? And I feel like this is Um, just one of those moments where we can really lean into the idea of rest because there aren't a lot of places for us to be anyway. So if, if we, if we had, if ever there was a time to lean into resting, I feel like it's now. And I feel like sometimes prioritizing, or like when you said scheduling your daily walk um, to schedule daily downtime too, is really important to not work 12 to 14 hours. I feel like teachers have um, educators. I I keep saying teachers. I mean it with a capital T. I really mean principals, you, everybody. Um, I think we really grapple with this idea of like, juxtaposing guilt and exhaustion. We're like, I'm so exhausted, but I'm guilty if I don't do this. I'm so tired, but if I'm not doing it, who's going to do it? Who's going to be there? If it's not me, then who, you know? Um, And it's kind of altruistic, but it's true. Like we're always balancing this responsibility. Um, So I think it's important too, for our leaders to just say, hey, stop. It's okay. We're in a new, all of the expectations we had before, are different because of this in this moment and so if you have to if you have to rest then you rest but it's different to hear it coming from you
1: yeah I, I just think I think it's important Jennifer that we play the long game and the most important thing is I don't want any, any of our staff to feel like they're by themselves um, I think all of us more than ever we need to we need each other we need each other and our fa- our children need our teachers I'm just going to say it that way they really need a uh, Our teachers are their lifeline more than ever because, again, our families are trying to figure out how to survive by the hour, by the day. And that's why, again, I encourage our teachers to look at some of these scarcity uh, podcasts that really help you understand how their brain works. And it made me better appreciate my parents. It made me better appreciate what I went through growing up. Um, And, you know, and I'll tell you, I mean, part of this is helping our children understand what's happening right now because they're trying to also analyze it. And so I know it's a lot to ask of our teachers and our counselors and all of our staff, our support staff, but here's the thing, you said this earlier, Jennifer, what is the number one reason why we're all motivated by this work? It is to support these children. It is to support our community and our families. And so for us, that is what, that's what makes us happy, right? At the same time, it, it, it creates a lot of anxiety and it creates a lot of stress, but it also creates our happiness. And so for us, the trick is, how do you balance those two things? It's like the yin and the yang. How do you balance those two things together? Because um, trust me, for, for many of our staff, if you leave this work, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. And and, and you're going to, because again, it's your social happiness, just like it is your social stress. And then count on me and our staff to help you reduce those stresses. In other words, don't take us off the hook to reduce. To reduce your stressors, whether it's more support in your classrooms, more support in your building. Again, we're fighting for this bond right now, Jennifer. Why? Because we know that that's what our teachers need, right? That They need those classrooms to be at that level. That's what our students need. So again, you know, as a district, we need to do our part, uh, but I want our staff to know, again, th- please help us figure out how to reduce your stressors, because we need you to be healthy. We need you to to be, able to, to be able to sustain, you know, the energy that you have right now, because again, we're going to get through this. We're going to get through this. And I have no doubt of that.
0: Thank you. Thank you for making time to talk to me today. I, I truly appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. You can come back anytime, sir. I'm sure there's lots to lots more to talk about. <laughs> I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education.